You're listening to the Toot Sleuth Podcast. Hosted by Greg Essenmacher. Welcome to the Tooth Sleuth Podcast, all about the business of dentistry. I'm Greg Essenmacher, your host, and I'm honored you've chosen to spend your time with us as I speak with industry leaders on the dental landscape from their perspective. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome Ross Brannan. Ross is a financial advisor serving dentists and business owners across the country looking to maximize their earning, investing, and wealth potential. He helps clients by the creation of Tax Alpha. Tax Alpha is the ability of an investor to outperform by taking advantage of tax-saving strategies. When not serving his clients, he's an unpaid Uber driver for five kids and all of their activities, which include, but are not limited to, football, basketball, dance, and jiu-jitsu. When he and his wife can get away, and by get away he means a house that's quiet, they like to go to sporting events, eating in nice restaurants, date nights, and reading. Help me welcome my friend, Ross. Hey, buddy, what's going on, man? Hey, man, how are you? All right, so I got I to gotta start by asking, so what is date night to you and your wife? Because it means something else for my spouse and I. Well, I mean, there are some people out there like, we have a date night every Friday. And when, <laughs> when those people talk, I want to punch them in the face. Um, I, I say punch in the throat, so okay. Yeah, different, different because, plot of- I mean, I might get a date night once a quarter um, just because we're just going sideways, like, Two weekends ago, one of us was in, we live in Florida, one of us was in Jacksonville, the other one was in Orlando for tournaments. And so it's just like, oh, hey, hi, how are you? Oh, yeah, that's, you're my wife. That's right. So, so sometimes that happens, but, you know, it, date night is just going to dinner somewhere and usually not taking the phone, but the kids will usually call us five times while we're there on the phone. So, <laughs> And it's because the other one's poking them or something, right? someone's fighting or arguing or someone's saying that we said something the other one's denying saying we didn't say it so it's just you know uh it, that's how it is it's minor 16 13 11 7 3 the 13 and 7 year old are the same person just different gender and they fight like cats and dogs <laughs> the 16 year old is super type a and she will basically she's the jujitsu practitioner she, she just got her license she'll murder any of them um except for the three-year-old who has everyone wrapped around his finger so it sounds pretty typical of a family though, right? You want the oldest to be the type A that's the enforcer and the youngest one who like bosses everyone around without having to. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> we call it manage chaos. Um yeah. so it works for us. You know, we debated having six, but the bandwidth just ran out. So unless I had get hired help and I'm not big on a stranger raising my kids, so that's just that's kind of my take on it. Well, I, I'm grateful that my parents didn't stop at five because I'm number six. And they finally, I think either were just exhausted or they finally <laughs> just found the right one at six. Well, it's how many kids do you have? Uh, one. One. I wow. stopped at one. <laughs> well, it's interesting because your parenting gets more liberal as each kid comes on. So my first kid, she didn't have a hot dog till she was like eight years old. My fifth kid, who's three and a half now, has been eating hot dogs since he was about one year old. It's his favorite food. He'll eat them off the floor. Uh, he'll eat them cold. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's 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 disgusting, but hilarious at the same time. It went from formula to hot dogs. There was no like a, a oatmeal or anything in between. No, yeah, yeah, and, or like the um, 
you know, like you have like an Eminem phone on the ground for your first kid, and you're like, it's like, you know, it's like World War, it's like nine one one. Let's bring in like a hazmat crew, disinfect it, or throw it away. I mean, my three year old will find an Eminem that's been on the, on the ground on the couch for three months, and then eat that. But um, under underneath a cushion, it's got yeah. like three things stuck to it with different colors, and yeah, you're like, I, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I go got, for I it. I got two dogs, pet hair all over. Doesn't care. Yeah, doesn't even matter. Yeah. Well, you're managing a family of that size and going in different directions. So, talk to me a little bit in my my listening audience about how you manage clients and how you help them to manage money because. Ev- Everybody, right? Everybody talks about like managing money and financial advice. Of course, I have a financial advisor, especially business owners, right? That I work with as a consultant. And None of them have so, one. what do, what do you do differently? No, right? bro, Differentiate all, yourself. Yeah. No, very few business owners actually have a financial advisor. They have somebody they brought a product from, which is fine. But so, I was in the traditional side of financial services, you know, assets under management, insurance for for. Like 13 years. Right. A Fidelity, a Schwab, a, you right. know, that people know common buying mutual bonds and, you know, their right. sunset so clause. Yeah. I, I got to the point where I felt like it doesn't matter. You're, not that it doesn't matter, but you can do retirement planning, but you don't know if it actually worked out for 30 years. You can do investment planning, but you might not know if it worked out for a decade. You can do insurance planning, but if it does work out, something really bad happened. And, you know, I was like, the highest value that you could serve a client is saving them taxes. It's the biggest, it's the biggest expense, bar none. And it is, uh, it's so that you can see the results within 12 months. So I pivoted and I just started going to a deep, deep dive about learning about taxes. And I've, I've since, I don't do traditional financial services, financial advisor. I don't do, uh, investments like stocks, bonds. I don't do, you know, life and disability insurance. I don't do any of that anymore. Um, I just help people, high income people save taxes, um, through really advanced strategies that are in the code and they're not gray at all. They're, they're, they're in the code, but a lot of people just don't understand how they work. And I collaborate with CPAs and attorneys to help them with their clients and do that. So help me to define a little bit better, and especially for those that are listening, because I have a wide swath of individuals that listen. You know, some are from the vendor manufacturing side at all different levels. Some are business owners, founders that may have one location and who knows what, you know, amount of volume that doing all different types of revenues in single location practices. When you help define the high income people, what so, would you where's the tier you define that at? So the people that I work with. They, yes. make, they make a million dollars or more a year, or they have a capital gain event of five million dollars or more. It means they sold a piece of real estate, yep. or they sold a business for, uh, and they don't want to pay taxes, um, or it could be a ten thirty one exchange, and, and they can't find, they can't identify a property, and they need help with all of that. So uh, those are the people that I help, and it's not that those people are better; it's just that. The typical traditional financial services stuff of a of a retirement account, of a tax-deferred retirement account, that'll help people under that million dollars. But once you get to a million dollars or more, then paying your kids doesn't really move the needle. The Augusta rule, which is renting your house out two weeks a year, doesn't move the needle. The 401k or the cash balance plan doesn't move the needle. So that's what people should be doing under a million dollars of income. 
but people over a million dollars of income, they need new, they need other strategies that are available out there. Well, and you're really preaching to the choir, at least who you're talking to in my <laughs> podcaster here, because clients of mine in the full arch space, they've built up their practices. They've done what they've done. And I have a client that just went through a capital event of what you're speaking. And you know it was structured in many different ways. I won't give away any details. But when you're talking about it, a capital event like you just shared, it really is their practice. And the amount of cash at close was significant. And so when, did, when was the closing? Fairly recently. Okay, so, so like, <laughs> by the time this so there's, there's podcast comes out, it was done for a while. There's yeah. all that, sorts of strategies that you could do. Some of them you have to plan five years in advance for. Some of them you could do after closing. And here's the reality. Most CPAs, they know the code, but they're not in the business of implementing the code. And most CPAs have 500 clients on average, and probably 450 to 475 are W-2 employees that are kind of massive fluent middle income. Nothing wrong with that, but they're it's pretty easy from a tax planning standpoint what to do for them. And they really don't have the time or the bandwidth to go figure out what works for these other 25 clients. And so what what I've done with my partner I've done is we've gone out and we've learned these advanced strategies and we've done due diligence on the people who you can uh, uh, access to use these strategies. And we collaborate with CPAs to help them understand it, to help them create additional value for their clients. So the CPAs on, they know it's out there. They just don't have the bandwidth to really go do it. Well, and the collaboration piece that you're talking about, right? Because my, it's a big part of my business referrals and, you know, working with uh, MA partners that help clients to get to that capital event and position themselves with EBITDA 20% or higher. This is what they're doing. And when they find clients that are doing tons of arches, but it's not at a very profitable rate, we'll refer clients over to me and I help them with cash flow and profitability to streamline and become more efficient. So they are ready for a capital event. And what you're talking about is collaboration with the CPAs that know the tax code and to be able to position them better in order to execute on what's already there but they're not implementing and, and executing on it, right? Yeah, and you can you can work with, we would do a lot of work with M&A people as well because what'll happen is, I mean, what if I'm selling my practice to you for $10 million? I go to my CPA and my CPA says, congratulations, Ross, um, fantastic job. You're gonna get $7 million after all said and done. You know, after it's all said and done, and I'm like, what? It's like, well, you have to pay taxes. So I then go to my broker or my M and A advisor, whatever they, whatever you want to call them, and say we got to go. We got to sell asleep for twelve, so I can clear nine. And you're like, uh, no, the contracts for, or the letter of intent, or the contracts for for ten. I'm not raising the price. And all of a sudden, uh, if you don't deal with this on the front end, which I know some M and A people do, this can be definitely a substantial sticking point uh, for a transaction to to make it official. Right. Absolutely. And I love that. So what are some of the misconceptions that clients have about tax shelters and private equity consulting and things that you do? Well, uh, because it, it's not as defined, right? Well, there's it's, a lot of scams out there, plain and simple. I yeah. have a lot of friends 
that about three or four weeks, eh, about three or four weeks ago, a $150 million Ponzi scheme just got busted by the FBI and the SEC. And I had probably no less than a dozen friends in it. Um, oh. And they had been, they'd been told it was bad, but they didn't believe me because the returns were so good. But, uh, you know. And assuming these are smart people, right? Yes, but here's the problem that people make. Whether you're a PhD teaching at a university or you're a physician, you've gone to X amount of years of school and residency or you're in the dental world and you've done all everything there. People tend to think because they're smart in one area, they're smart in all areas. And, <laughs> and I'm sure you and I are the same way, but, uh, um, but they're not. And, you know, greed. Why do you think Las Vegas casinos and sports books are so, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? You look at, they opened up all the sports books and what did they say? Like $8 billion went through sports book betting recently You're in right. the last year, right? Because everybody thinks, I'm a pretty smart person. I know who's going to win. Right. I'm going to put 10 bucks on the Miami Heat to win game six. Yeah, that didn't work out. Then they right. doubled down, right, in game seven, hopefully, and then won their running back. But no, Boston's going to win game seven. Anyway. Right, anyway. no, I, I, totally get, I totally get what you're saying. So so we just kind of, I'm sure there's some sort of psycholo- excuse me, psychological thing that, that kind of explains what it is, but we all think we're smarter than we are. Typically, we're smart in a, in a niche area, um, and and that's really it. But so there's lots of bad deals out there. There's, there's lots of scams out there, which is why uh, we do extensive due diligence through third-party CPA firms and third-party law firms. So, for example, you know, we're having law firms do background checks on the operators of the business. Have they done doing financial background checks, doing criminal background checks? And making sure these people have actually done what they're saying they're doing before in the process. Then we have third-party underwriters, underwriter deal, to make sure the numbers actually make sense. And if there's tax benefits, we have a third-party uh, law firm give a tax opinion on the deal. So um, obviously, nothing is. There's always risk in everything you do. Heck, there's risk when you hop in your car to go somewhere. Um, but you know, we've we reduced a lot of risk when we do this type of stuff. And most of the time. These things that go belly up, there is no due diligence on them. No one's actually done any due diligence. It just sounded good. And they wanted to get a better rate of return. So they just put their money there. And and that's what happens. And like we'll do site visits uh, with, with sponsors to see where things, make sure everything uh, looks and um, adds up. And we've done, we were, I was just doing one on, on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday this week. I did one a month ago. Um, always in different parts of the country and so we're doing our due diligence because we just don't we don't have the ability we we can't be wrong um because it would cost too much money for all the people we collaborate with it's just it's just not an option so we've got to make sure we get it right and so it it I mean, it sounds very in depth with what you do with the clients. It high high stakes is the word, you know, the phrase that's coming to mind for me. What level? What what's the number of? I, I I'm guessing that the number of deals, the actual like ticker count of number of deals, isn't like ginormous. You're not doing it in volume. You're doing it in quality of deals that you're working on on an annualized quarterly basis. I'm thinking annualized basis. Am I off here? Or? Well, here's the thing. I'm not the only person doing the due diligence. I'm doing site business to make sure I understand the deal and like the deal. Um, yeah. If we have 100 deals at any point in time, 
in market. It doesn't mean we like all of them, but they've all gone through extensive due diligence. Some deals are income plays, some deals are growth plays, and some deals are tax plays. So it really, what fits for uh, for for you is different than fits for me because our facts and circumstances are different. But we really try and hone it down to probably a couple dozen things that we really like to focus on. And I, I think one of the things is like we're not operating in gray areas in the tax code. Everything is black and white in the tax code. But what we find is a lot of people are conditioned to believe that whatever you pay is whatever you pay in taxes that there's no way to reduce it without breaking the law. It's a good job by the IRS and the CPAs, but it's because the CPA is the most trusted advisor and they're not hearing it from their CPA. Um, and, and because their CPAs are talking about it doesn't mean it's not available. They just don't have the time and bandwidth, like I said earlier, to deal with it. But the people who are hungry and wanting to save money on taxes will go find something. But unfortunately, sometimes it's, you know, not a, not a good deal. So. We're trying to protect people as best we can. We're trying to help them because I would argue, I'm sure someone would debate me on this, but I would argue the highest rate of return we're going to get is a dollar taken back from the IRS. And so if, if, if you make a million bucks and you pay $500,000 in taxes or $400,000 in taxes, and we could cut that in half, it's probably a good day at the office. That's significant for sure. So how do you guide, coach, mentor, advise these clients of yours that you're working with of the the 100 deals in it. You know, I know that you said that there's different types of deals that you work with, but how do you help your clients and guide them through the decision-making process? Because you have what seems to be the knowledge and the skill, and they may be knowledgeable in their field, in their industry, in their vertical. So what does that look like? Well, it's, The engagement on the front end and then guiding them through the process. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's a conversation. You know, I mean, they might be a referral through a friend. They might be a referral from a CPA. They might be a referral from a consultant. And we'll have a conversation, and we'll find out kind of what's their hot-button issue. Most of the time, it starts with taxes. So, okay, what is your income? Okay, you know, where are you earning it? You just get all the facts and their situation. And then we just kind of, kind of put it together, have a conversation, and, and just show them a couple different things and what they could do, where they could put their money to reduce their taxes. Because so there's this common misconception with, that I can make, wave a magic wand and taxes go away. No, you have to fundamentally do something different with your cash to make taxes go away. And people don't always understand that at first. So it's like, okay, here's a few options, Mr. or Mrs. Client. You did A, here's what this does. You did B, here's what this does. You did C, here's what this does. And usually they like one or both, one or two or three of those options, and they decide to deploy capital in that to reduce their tax burden. And and obviously these these types of things have many of them have income and many of them have some growth on top of it. So it, it, it's not just taxes. It, it's, it's a way to grow your money and save taxes at the same time, typically speaking. So a combination thereof. And, and, start, and so what I heard you say as well is that it's a referral from any number of sources. And is that 100% of your business is referral-based coming from clients or others that you know in the industry? From And it sounds like you work with CPAs and uh, attorneys and then uh, consultants. And so is that where 100% of your business is coming from? It is. I'm not picking up the phone and calling the guy who I, you know. Right, cold calling. <laughs> yeah. We're not cold calling people. 
Oh my sandwich neighbor. boards outside. Yeah, no sandwich <laughs> oh my my neighbor just drove bought a Mercedes. I should call him. No, that's not that's not what we're doing. It's, it's all over the place. And I, I can't imagine that you're going to pick up too many clients standing outside a subway waving a sandwich board for high-income uh, individuals, for sure. And you said that it helped me to understand, too, the evolution of how you uh, came into this. So you said you don't do a traditional uh, uh, financial consulting anymore. So tell me what that evolution in your career looks like and how you made the decision to transition over to this type of wealth management if you will consulting like i said i did that i did the traditional side for a long time but then i just came to this point where i felt like the large the highest value i could offer would be helping a client reduce their taxes and once i went down that road and started learning what that looked like and what what it would take and the tools that were needed i realized i had to make a switch and when i made the switch i really kind of wanted to burn the ships i didn't want to bring the old stuff with me I handed it all off to a junior advisor who I had mentored for a few years. And I just went, you know, started from scratch on the new side where I'm like, we're only doing, you know, tax planning for clients and private equity, venture capital growth investments. And, you know, all these investments, they definitely have some positive attributes that most people aren't aware of. I mean, but they have some negative attributes. There's no liquidity. And so, but because of that, there is a liquidity an illiquidity premium, meaning you can earn a higher rate of return due to the illiquid nature of it. But uh, so that's the world I'm in. I, I I really really love it. I really like helping people in this regard. And if you can help someone save taxes, they typically um, are big fans of yours. Yeah, and I would think that circles that they may be in. Uh, you know, if you do right by them and do well by them, I'm sure that they're having conversations with people that they know, um, uh, and, and sharing, sharing the story. It does happen a lot. It does happen a lot. You, you'll see, you know, one buddy saves a bunch of money on taxes. He's telling his other buddy, And, um, that's just kind of how it goes, how it grows. Yeah. And I was, I was going to say it, it's water cooler conversation, but I don't think they're standing around a water cooler if they're. No, they're probably, they're probably not. They're probably either at the golf club or um, maybe the Bellagio fountains, but not yeah. not a water cooler. That's, Just that's to correct. stick with the analogy. All right, my friend, this is the point of the podcast where everybody goes through a part of the program called "What the Sleuth is Going On." So it's three rapid fire questions. Okay. I ask him of you first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready to play? Yes. Okay. Question number one. What's the worst bad breath you've ever encountered? Does my seven-year-old daughter count? At anyone. <laughs> I, there's no qualifiers. Uh, it's Well, first of all, from, a, from the standpoint of I don't like have a vivid memory of it, but the first thing that comes to mind, my seven-year-old daughter or my dog, one of the two. She's never going to hear this, but it may... If you could change one thing about your smile, what would it be? Nothing. <laughs> you look I'm good the way. Maybe I am. I'm cocky. I like my smile. It's pretty good, you know. Maybe it, maybe the gray hair on the chin, but besides that, I'm good. It, it's the it's the accent 
for the smile. Right? So, so, <laughs> yeah. so it, count, it counts now, as the, 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 the chin every, strap. Every, Everybody question. answers the same question on the podcast. So Your episode number, like 27. And yes, every and guest you, answers. And you said, let's talk about bad breath. That'll be a great question. And yeah, <laughs> it's wow. a running segment. <laughs> question number three. <laughs> nice. Your response, wow. Question number three. If you could go back and be the inventor of any dental product, which one would you choose and why? Well, that's, I don't know the profit margin on these things. So I'm at a, I'm at a loss, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to guess on a couple of things. Well, I was about to say the little thing they clean your teeth with, but those don't, those, those last a long time. So what's disposable that is used all the time? And I don't know the ins and outs of a dental office enough to say, but you do. So what's the most disposable thing that's used every single time? That is an actual invention that's not gauze or floss. <laughs> You're asking me. Yes. I can't answer for you. I'm asking you what something is. I'll then decide if I want that to be my answer. Give me three oh, things. I don't, Give I'm me not, three I'm things. Not a, I'm not on the GP side. That that doesn't uh, that doesn't count. Yeah. All right. I so can, uh what about those awesome dental scrubs? Jeez. That's a that's an outfit. Um, right. Um, have you ever seen the price of like figs? Those things are ridiculous. No. So, well, let's just say this. If I could patent a toothbrush where I got a piece of the action on every single one sold forever, then I'd do a toothbrush. But have you, have you seen the movie air that just came out? Oh, I have not. I want oh, to though. You've got, you've got to see that. So, you know, Michael Jordan's mom change the paradigm and he gets a little nugget off of every single one of his shoes that are sold and they showed a little snip at the end that he makes about 400 million dollars a year off of shoe sales currently that's what he's making about 400 million a pair a year. Of Jordan's costs like 250 right now i i know right so i mean if you that's what you're talking about like a, a toothbrush like if you could get just like a half a penny off of every toothbrush. Yeah, I don't know if that's possible. You, you, but... you, you would be one of those high-income people that would need some tax shelters and figure out how to do the yeah, money um, better. <laughs> yeah. So, because because if you were getting if you were getting residuals on orthodontic treatment, and you would get no money from this the country of Great Britain whatsoever. None. 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 Zero. See there, then then and then you would want to change one thing about your smile if you were if you were from Great Britain. That's there correct. goes my listening audience of Great Britain. I don't know that we have any listeners from there. We might have one or two. Uh-oh. Hey, own it, brother. Own it. Right, right. Joe Rogan would be proud. Piss him off, and you get all more stereotypes are based upon a certain amount of truth. There is some truth in jest. That's for sure. Yeah. All right, my friend. So in the last few minutes, right, I want to respect your time. Is there anything I haven't asked you or that you haven't brought up yet that you want to share with my listening audience today? Well, here's the thing. You and I have met over Zoom numerous times, but we've never met in person. Correct. And while I'm not that tall on Zoom, I'm six foot eight in real life. Are you really? Six foot eight barefoot. I might be like six foot eight and a quarter barefoot. So my kids say I'm six nine, but I always say I'm six eight. So. You're one of the few people that I would look up to then. How tall are you? 6'4". People say, he's tall. I'm like, how tall is he? They're like, 6'3". I'm like, that's not freaking tall. No. Average. That's that. like average. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, that's, like, that's like an average height like, person wearing lips. It is so rare for me to look up to somebody. It's so rare. I have is like once every couple of years. I will find someone I look up to. Them. Like two out of three grocery store cashiers ask me how tall I am. Like that is a legitimate statistic. 
And every time someone asks me, I'll is tell it my, though? If I were to ask one of your five kids if that's a legit statistic, would they agree? They absolutely would. <laughs> absolutely. But now here's the thing: you can't ask me how tall I am if you ever get a straight answer on me. I'll be like five two, and the look on their face is like perplexed. So, hey. so, so the Tooth Sleuth podcast should be honored that Ross Brandon gave a straight answer to how tall you are because that was the little nugget you gave at the end that everybody wanted to hear. Well, and then I'll then they really realize and I'll tell them how tall I am. Then I always, I always ask. Someone asks me how tall I am. I always ask how tall they are. I'll answer and say, well, "How tall are you?" And here's what I've also found through statistical research: if someone tells you they are five feet, they are they're lying. four seven. They're four they are, seven. They're four eleven. <laughs> Because I'll tell people, like, I'm five foot. No, you're not. You're four eleven. Oh, no, I know. I, I just said five foot. <laughs> They're every, full of shame over that one inch. Every single Every time. time. Well, Ross, if there are any listeners out there, and because I am in the fixed full arch lane, there are many that I work with, that listen to, uh, vendors that are involved with, uh, you know, individuals that do have capital events that really do fall into that lane exactly what you're talking about so in that event how would individuals get a hold of you i'll make sure it goes in the show notes but say it out loud if anybody calls me i answer the phone um i don't care who calls i answer telemarketer calls all the time so i don't care so you can call me but most people don't use the phone they don't still email or text but my phone number is 850-566-7999 850-566-7999 Five six six seven nine nine nine. My email to make it super easy is ross at rossbrannon.com. That's B R A N N O N. So ross at rossbrannon.com. Um, super easy. Shoot me an email, shoot me a text message, call me, and we can have a conversation, see if I can help you out. Awesome. And like I said, we'll make sure that goes in the show notes so those that are running on a treadmill or outside or those that are driving don't have to scramble and getting into any accidents. We want people to be safe out there. We don't want to lose any listeners that way. We've already lost Great Britain and those that are under six foot two. So we need to maintain <laughs> the rest of our listeners. Ross Brandon, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a good one, my friend. Take care. All right. Thank you for listening to the Tooth Sleuth Podcast, sponsored by GNA Consult, helping dentists and dental professionals maximize their potential. From vision to execution, creating business strategies that work. Reach out to the show to get more information. Signing off for now, I'm Greg Essenmacher. I thank you for your time and the pleasure of your company. And remember to keep smiling. This podcast was produced by T-Door Productions. Theme song written by The Whole Other.